But this week we're picking up where we left off. Um, the chapter in Christianity and Liberalism on the Bible. So we have established that in the book he starts off um, talking about in the introduction uh, some of the major differences between liberalism and conservative Christianity, um, true Christianity, and how liberalism is another religion altogether. Liberal Christianity is not true Christianity. It's not Christianity at all. And then he starts to argue from first the point of doctrine. Uh, they place very little emphasis on doctrine and more emphasis on experience. So that's, that's the first thing. That's the foundation. Their view of doctrine is different than ours. We say that the Christian life is founded on doctrine. While liberals will say, liberal Christians or liberal Christianity will say that um, doctrine is indifferent. It doesn't matter what your doctrine is so long as you experience whatever the experience is, whether it's the born-again experience or the experience of a life change, almost like God is catering to us, that God is catering to man rather than us to God. And then in the uh, next chapter, he goes right into the differences in their teaching on the doctrine of God and the doctrine of man. That's why you have the handout from a few weeks ago on God and man. So the differences between what liberals teach about God and man and what we teach about God and man. We teach that God is transcendent. He is holy other. He is different than us. And that man, in his fallen state, is totally depraved. Okay, I would add to that, even as a creature, even Adam, the gulf between him and God was still at a distance where there is a complete distinction between the creator and the creature. There is a distinction that we must uphold. So we went over uh, the difference between God and man in the, in the chapter following doctrine, and now... We're halfway through uh, our view of the Bible versus the liberal view of the Bible. And if you follow the points, we're, uh, I believe, on your paper, if you, we're on point four, um, which is really the third point, if you don't count the introduction. So point four, the Bible is inspired. We, we have covered how, for us, the Bible is special Revelation. Secondly, the, the Bible is historical. <clears throat> we read it as a historical document. The gospel is not just something that we imagine. The gospel is not just a fairy tale. It's not a myth. Um, it's not something in other religions that oftentimes are myths and cannot be proven. The Bible is historical. Um, an actual man by the name of Jesus walked this earth, and he died on the cross, and he was raised on the third day, and he ascended into the heavens. And he is now, right now, in his flesh, in the flesh, right now, seated on the throne in heaven. We, we tend to forget that. It's historical, and he is there in heaven, in the body he took on when he was born of a virgin. The marks are still on his hands. 
And in his side, and even the thorns that pricked his head, those scars are still there in heaven, waiting for um, his return. So uh, it's historical. It happened. Um, many, there are many evidences of this. Josephus wrote about his, uh, his presence in the, in the uh, area. And Josephus was an enemy of, of God. He's an enemy of Christ. He, he's a, he was an unconverted Jew. So he was an enemy of Christ. And he wrote of Jesus. Many people wrote of Jesus being eyewitnesses to him. And then you have 500 plus eyewitnesses, according to 1 Corinthians, of him being raised and walking around and showing himself to his disciples. As far as evidence is concerned, I think it is on our side to say the Bible is a historical record of the gospel. Without the history of redemption, you don't have redemption. Okay? It's not just about our experiences. It's about rooting our experiences in what happened in history. It's a connection between us now and 2,000 years ago when Christ accomplished what we can never do for ourselves, and that's redemption. If we don't have, like I said, there's a booklet out there, Unfolding Redemption, pick it up. It's rooted, all of redemption history is rooted in history. It actually happened. And if it didn't happen, we have no hope. If Christ was not raised, we are most to be pitied, right? So now we're on the fourth point. The Bible is inspired. Excuse me. So Machen is saying all this to defend the fact that we need historical criticism. That that is the study of what was going on surrounding the writing of scripture. But we cannot depend solely on documentary evidence. There is plenty of evidence that defends the Bible's early dating. There is evidence that proves the authorship of each book or letter. There is internal evidence of their truth when compared to other archaeological finds. All this work is remarkable and should be used to prove the Bible's authenticity and uniqueness. But what Machen says here reminds me of what our confession says in chapter 1, section 5. We may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church to an high and reverent esteem of the Holy Scripture and the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give all glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection thereof are arguments whereby it doth abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. So you have all these evidences that we can prove That the Bible is the word of God. It's just listed here. The efficacy of the doctrine. The truthfulness of that doctrine and how it is applied to life, right? The heavenliness of the matter. When you read the Bible, you know it's a different book. Just when you begin to read it, you know it. You sense it. You feel it. The majesty of the style. The way it is written. Even in the the more primitive languages of Hebrew and Greek that you find in some of the letters, even those flow much better than our modern-day English does. 
the full discovery it makes of man's only way of salvation, the way it opens up salvation to us, the many other incomparable excellencies and the entire perfection. It's a perfect book. It is consistent from Genesis to Revelation. I, ho- I hope I've been uh, revealing that to you over the ministry here is that one of the main things I want to teach you is that the Old and New Testament are, are connected in every part of it. Now you can find the New Testament all over the Old and you can find the Old all over the New. Okay, There's no inconsistency there. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority thereof is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. So just like the Westminster divines before him, here he is defending the plenary, that is the word for word, inspiration of scripture. There are human authors and one divine author, the Holy Spirit, who inspired the human writers to pen the scriptures. As Paul said in 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is breathed out by God, and so it is without error, and it is the infallible rule of faith and practice. But the plenary, which means absolute, word-for-word inspiration of scripture, has been misrepresented as if we're saying that the Holy Spirit mechanically dictated the words of Scripture to the authors who were really little more than stenographers. Those you know, writing down what the Spirit's telling them to do, telling them to say and write. Machen didn't have time for such straw man arguments uh, because, in fact, we believe that the biblical writers are inspired by the Holy Spirit, but not at the expense of their individuality or the way they would ordinarily acquire information, right? Such as studying philosophy. Like when Paul quoted pagan philosophy in Acts 17. And it doesn't mean we ignore or lack interest in the historical situations which gave rise to the biblical books, right? There's a lot that happened in getting the Bible to where it is today. It didn't just magically appear. There was a historical process that occurred that God used by his providence to have the Bible here uh, within our hands. The, the early church uh, didn't have the entire New Testament in their hands immediately. It, took, it was over the course of years before they received the entire New Testament and all agreed and said, yes, this is the word of God. Right? It is consistent in every part. Okay. What the doctrine of plenary, absolute inspiration of the Bible teaches is that there are no errors in the Bible. I don't know if the handout says this. I missed the word no there. That's important. I don't know if that's in the handout. I have to go back and look. But if it doesn't say no, there are no errors. Not that there are errors in the Bible. There are no errors in the Bible. The biblical writers were kept from falling into error by the work of the Holy Spirit. But he says uh, the liberal does not come right out and deny inspiration, but he nitpicks at our views, draws these straw man arguments to dismiss our views. Like you're saying the Holy Spirit mechanically controlled people to write the Bible. He also notes that there is another group of true Christians who believe in the supernatural acts of the Bible, 
such as their own faith and salvation, but not the supernatural inspiration of the Bible. They believe the Bible has been handed down by trustworthy witnesses, but may contain errors. Uh, This group needs to be distinguished from the liberal who rejects the supernatural altogether. Now, though they are true Christians because they have placed their faith in Jesus and his atoning work for salvation, can this view be maintained? I would say it cannot. Um, uh, Why would you put your trust in the word of God if you believe, oh, there could be some errors in there? Why would you put your trust and faith in a God who delivers his word and yet he delivers his word with error in it. Uh, that, that could be a real problem to someone's faith. And, and down the line, you, a lot of people have lost their faith because they approach the Bible saying, I don't know if this is really true. I know I believe in Jesus, but did he really walk on water? Did he really raise the dead? Did he really split the Red Sea and the Jordan River into Because the issue at hand has to do with not only inspiration, but also the reliability and authority of Scripture in the believer's life. Jesus himself held to a high view of Scripture as God's word. And there are internal evidences that the Bible is inspired. Just by reading it, you sense that the Bible holds its own authority as described in the confession, which I quoted earlier. Because the liberal not only rejects the plenary inspiration of scripture, but also they respect, reject respect for the Bible over against any ordinarily trustworthy book. They put the Bible on equal footing with every other book. So what is the liberal's authority, right? What is the liberal Christian's authority? Is it the Bible? No, it's not. They claim that their authority is not the Bible, but Jesus Christ himself. Right? This, is, this is the historical Jesus movement that taught that Jesus' teaching differed from that of the Old Testament and Paul's epistles. So they rely not on the um, perverse moral teaching, according to them, it was perverse, the perverse moral teaching of the Old Testament or the doctrines of grace we find in Paul in his New Testament letters, But they rely on Jesus alone for their guidance. Um, This is funny because this still goes on today, right? Um, We see this example in the Red Letter Bible. I always pick on the Red Letter Bible. The Red Letter Bible is saying, well, Jesus' words are more important than the rest of the Word of God. He is the ultimate revelation of God, but is he the only revelation of God? We would say no. You have God's Word. Right? Special revelation. And we have natural revelation. And you hear this from politicians. We hear this from journalists as they go to what Jesus said in the New Testament. Right? The Sermon on the Mount is probably one of the most quoted sections of the Bible by journalists and politicians and people in general. But they don't read it in the context of the entire Bible. If you're not reading the Sermon on the Mount in the context of what came before and what came after, you're going to lose the message. As I said before, the Sermon on the Mount was directed only to his disciples. 
not to general society. And it's only for his disciples to live out. Those without the Holy Spirit can't live the Sermon on the Mount. They haven't been redeemed. So when the Christian calls out sin, they usually go to Jesus to say, didn't he teach us to love? You can't judge, right? But Jesus didn't say you can't judge. He says, don't be a hypocrite when you judge. Soon after that, he says, you must judge with righteous judgment. He also taught us how we are to repent and that he sent his apostles to teach the same thing so that the next generation, the church, would proclaim that same message of faith and repentance. But to the liberal, they they don't like this message because it accuses them of some kind of wrong. They don't believe they've done anything wrong. Right? We, We just heard that from, again, I don't, I don't plan this stuff out. Last, last week's message went with the, the Sunday school. Uh, this week, for some reason, it's going with uh, our Sunday school. Um, we, we know the Lord is in control of that. But the, the same message is faith and repentance. We're called to believe and repent. We have a problem, and the problem is sin. These were the words of Jesus. Okay, It wasn't just about loving people. It was also about repentance. Repentance so that we would love people better. Love better than we are already fooling ourselves thinking that we are loving people. Uh, But the real problem with this Jesus only doctrine of the liberal is that they are ignoring, as I've been saying, what the rest of God's revelation says. Um, All of the Bible is God's word. They are all equally true and present the same message. The gospel is all over the Old Testament, even though Jesus had not come yet. It was the gospel promised. The New Testament is the gospel fulfilled. And Jesus' words cannot contain all that we need to know about God and about the way of salvation. That's something else we forget, right? Jesus' life and work, that is his life, death, and resurrection, was a fulfillment of what came before in the Old Testament, And all that his work accomplished was not set forth before his work was done. He revealed himself and his work slowly, not all at once to his disciples. Uh, This is what, if you ever hear me refer to biblical theology, this is what biblical theology is, is looking at the entire Bible and seeing how redemption began in Genesis 3.15 and how it unfolds itself slowly until you come to Christ. And then from Christ until you get to Revelation. Okay? It's taking account the whole Bible. And this answers important questions like, why don't we circumcise our kids anymore? Why is that not required? Why don't we take part in Jewish festivals? Okay? It answers all of those questions. Once we look at biblical theology, how it unfolds slowly. And this is why we interpret scripture with scripture, not scripture against scripture. Whatever Jesus said must be interpreted in light of what the Old Testament said before and what Paul said later on. Because, 
Remember, Paul would have the full explanation of what Jesus was doing. Okay? Revelation, special revelation, develops. It begins in seed form, and slowly it buds and blooms. No teaching of Scripture is inferior to another and must be interpreted with one another. You know, a lot of, a lot of folks don't even preach out of the Old Testament because they believe, ah, oh, that's the inferior Scripture. We, we really got what we need in the New Testament, so we, need, we don't even need to go to the Old. But we need the Old. It's God's Word. It's not inferior to the New. And Jesus is all over those pages just like he is in the new. But even this claim that they hold to Jesus' authority only is false. I think I just explained it. Because even in Jesus' words, there are things that the liberal would find abhorrent. Jesus would speak of his own deity. He would speak of his work on the cross as a ransom to be paid for many. And all those doctrines that are explained in greater detail and clarity later on. We should even think of how Jesus spoke about hell. Do they ignore those passages? To go back to the Sermon on the Mount and talk about, you know, how Jesus is all about love? The Sermon on the Mount, half of it was about hell. Do they ignore those texts? Later after the Sermon on the Mount... Jesus would call them to come to him for forgiveness of sins. So the words of Jesus that they find authoritative is a long process of picking and choosing those words that conform to their own preconceived ideas or whatever suits them and their agendas. Right? I don't trust politicians who use the Bible. I don't care what side they're on. I'm, I'm, a, I'm very... Uh, uh, I'm, a, I'm very cautious when they start whipping out the scripture because I know the nature of politics today. And I know the nature of them trying to reach out to their constituents. They use the golden rule, judge not, etc. Out of, again, context. Out of context. And they use it for their own agendas. What, is, what suits them? After they have sifted through all of Jesus' words, in the end, Due to their own inconsistencies, they say that some of what Jesus said was wrong because it didn't match up with other things he said. Um, And they go into this long process of trying to decipher what was Jesus' real words versus what was false because they're uncomfortable with some of it. So instead of interpreting scripture with scripture, they are interpreting scripture against scripture to match their own ideology. They're misusing the scripture for their own agendas. They try to find Jesus' life purpose that the church is to be shaped after. They look for those moral teachings that the church ought to follow and not get hung up on doctrine. And in doing this, they isolate and misinterpret the teaching of Jesus that happens to agree with the current program. Think of social justice, the social gospel, how to end poverty, etc., They completely miss what Jesus said his life purpose was. And that was the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 
So it is not Jesus who is the real authority, but the modern principle, whatever it is. Think of whatever is going on in society today. That is, that is what governs how we read and select which of Jesus' teaching is authoritative. Right? You think of BLM a couple years ago and uh, critical race theory in, in the church. All these things diverting from the core message of Scripture. So their claim are false because they deny some of the obvious teaching of Jesus himself, such as his consciousness of, uh, of being the heavenly Messiah. He knew he was the Messiah. Some claim, oh no, he didn't, he didn't know. He didn't know he was the Messiah. I, I mean, from the beginning of the Gospels, he declared that he was the Messiah. He declared, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that king is here. That's why he was saying it. The king is here. The time has come. The time is fulfilled. So we ask, where is their ultimate authority? Is it in God? The Bible? Or Jesus? Well, none of the above. They claim it's in Jesus only, but it's really none of the above. The authority is found where? In themselves. In man. And in the Christian experience. All that chapter. Not, it's not that long of a chapter if you read it. Not that long just to get to this point. Their authority is not even in Jesus' words. It's in themselves. It's in man. They didn't vote on this authority. But their indiv individual experiences decides what helps the individual man. Sound familiar? We, we heard it in Job today. This, Machen adds, is no authority at all because individual experience is endlessly diverse. And when one truth is regarded only as that which works at any particular time, it ceases to be the truth. Right? All of our experiences, all of our Christian experiences are different from one to another. Some of you were converted at a young age and you don't even remember when you never believed in, in Jesus. That's a good thing. Some of us are converted under a traumatic experience where we recognize the holiness of God and how we have sinned against His holiness. And we come under severe conviction, completely different, one to another. But both versions are valid. Okay? One is not superior to the other. We should never preach it that way, okay? People can be born again, as Jesus said, the Holy Spirit. You can't, you can't tell him what to do or where to go. He's going to convert who he wants when he wants. And so, this is the same thing going on here. The truth of Scripture is endlessly true, no matter your experience. Not only when we can use it or not only when it helps man. We don't turn to scripture just because it helps us. Okay? We should not view God's word that way. Again, I mentioned this in, in the sermon on Job today. We, we don't only go to God's word when it, when it helps us in our situation. We go to God's word because it's God's word. Remember that the Reformation, which was founded on the authority of the Bible set the world aflame because dependence on the word of God is life and it is not burdensome, but it is the very Magna Carta 
of Christian liberty. Where the word of God is, there is life. No matter what you're going through, once you pick up the word of God, if you don't notice, it speaks to you in a, in a way that no one else can. It comforts you in a way that no one else can. Where the word of God is, there is life. For the Christian that knows the word and its effects, imagine, imagine in your ex- own experience if you had no word from God. Imagine you didn't have a Bible. Many of us have two, three Bibles in our homes. Imagine if you didn't. How would your life turn out? How much despair you would have in life? And we already have despair with the Bible. We have shortcomings and we have bouts with depression and anxiety. Imagine if we didn't, how far worse it would be. How dark this world would become if we were left to our own devices. He closes with this. It is no wonder then that liberalism is totally different from Christianity, for the foundation is different. Christianity is founded upon the Bible. It bases upon the Bible both its thinking and its life. Liberalism, on the other hand, is founded upon the shifting emotions of sinful men. It's founded in men, what men want, what men want to hear, not what God has actually said. So to summarize the main points that Machen has tried to argue, the Bible is special revelation directly from God that reveals how man is saved and is the only rule for faith and practice. The Bible is historical, meaning it has recorded the history in which the Christian must believe. The Bible is inspired by the work of the Holy Spirit and the writers who wrote the Bible so it it would be kept from error. And the Bible is authoritative Above all other books, it holds supremacy over the words of mere men. It is the very words of God.